All right, so I am joined by um, Jennifer Burgess, uh, who is a philosophy professor at Georgia State University. What up, y'all? <laughs> and by uh, Ryan Lake, uh, who is also a philosophy professor at Georgia State University, but is not married to me. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? Uh, so I just uh, thought this uh, this might be fun just to do this as a little bit of an AMA. So anybody who wanted to call in to ask anything philosophy related, that this would be a good opportunity to um, to do that. Uh, but while we are waiting for people to uh, to call in, maybe just to um, to get the ball rolling a little bit. Um, how about, how about Ryan? Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, like, what kind of within philosophy you're you're interested in? You know, like like what you wrote your dissertation about, all that stuff. Um. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, pretty broadly, my my interest in philosophy have to do with ethics and free will. <clears throat> uh, what I wrote my dissertation on was uh, free will and moral responsibility and the question of free will and determinism. Award-winning dissertation, I should say. It did win the award for best dissertation in the humanities at the University of Miami in 2013, probably up against like two other dissertations, but still <laughs> it won. <clears throat> um, yeah, uh, so, so my dissertation was on free will and responsibility um, and the question of, of Determinism, and so I defended the view that uh, even if causal determinism is true, and that basically meaning that everything that happens in the universe operates according to strictly deterministic causal laws, such that if you knew everything that was going to happen at one moment and you knew the laws, you could predict with certainty what was going to happen in future moments. And so I argued that even if something like that is true about the universe, um, that we can still make sense of us having the kind of free will that's necessary uh, to, to ground claims about responsibility and praise and blame and most of the ordinary ways that we, uh, that we talk about ourselves and the kind of control we have over our lives. All right. Um, you should totally take the, um, the award-winning uh, part uh, because if, you know, I mean, look, I mean, Jim Beam still like bottles still have that little like award on them <laughs> that like, I think they probably won in one thing in you know, 1896 or something. You know? Sure. <laughs> that's right. PBR still has their blue ribbon that they won <laughs> like a hundred years ago. Yeah. So that's right. That's right. I'm the PBR of, of free will experts. So I don't take it. think so. Yeah. Uh, Jed, what are you out of ethicist? Um, I, I wrote my dissertation on why you should be nice to puppies. Right. So if, if which if is Ryan's... a lot more straightforward and less controversial than Ryan's, maybe that's why mine didn't win any awards. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> so if, if you're, uh, so if Ryan's award-winning free will dissertation makes him the uh, PBR of, uh, of free will experts, <laughs> then, then you're non-award-winning uh, dissertation on how to make sense of moral obligations to animals within a contractualist framework uh, makes you the, what, Fanta of, uh, of, of ethicists? <laughs> the strawberry Fanta. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds much, 
Yeah, much tastier than PBR. So that's <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, mine was about uh, philosophy of logic and uh, the the liar paradox, which for anybody who's listening who doesn't know what that is, uh, is roughly the question of like if I say what I'm saying right now isn't true then these two basic principles of classical logic seem to come into conflict, that everything is either true or untrue, and that um, and that nothing is both. Because if it's either true or untrue, right, if it's true that what I'm saying right now isn't true, then it's both true and untrue. And if it's untrue that what I'm saying right now is untrue, then it's both true and untrue. So one way or the other, it looks like one of those principles has to go. I argue in this thing that... Um, Neither of uh, that uh, that we don't actually have to give up either one of those. Uh, hold on, let me move to a further room from Jen. So, let's see if we can do something about the echo. Yeah, get away from me. <laughs> uh, so it looks like one of the other, the other of those principles uh, has to uh, has to go intuitively. I argue in my dissertation that there's actually a way of uh, making sense of all of this that doesn't involve having to reject either one of those, um, which is actually very, 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 very long time coming, uh, turning, uh, <laughs> turning into uh, to a book now, um, a so an academic book. So, like, you know, I wrote a book, give them an argument that has like sold like twelve thousand copies. Uh, if, uh, if this book sells 120 copies, I'll be shocked, uh, cause it's, uh, cause it's written for like the 20 academic nerds who specialize in this exact thing, but logic without gaps or blots is actually finally coming out in February, which is the book that's sort of a book version of the argument I made in that dissertation. Thanks. It's right. worth noting, this is probably by far the least controversial dissertation you could write, in a sense. Like, there are no true contradictions. Like, yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I remember, um, uh, <laughs> I remember you once suggested when I was doing the qualified exams that if one of the questions was, are contradictions ever true, since that was sort of, in a way, that was kind of my dissertation telling you know, a topic that I should answer uh, no, what are you? And then this is a much less enlightened age. So, you know, I won't, I won't quote the end of that sentence. But, uh, <laughs> uh, all right. We've got a call. Uh, Chardonnay Lakeith. Uh, let's, uh, let's make you the next caller. Uh, hello. Can you hear me? Hello. Hello. Uh, I was, uh, so I don't have any, like, I'm not university educated. I don't have any academic training, so I'm. It's I'm coming from a you know a layman's perspective. Uh, but I was wondering what your thoughts are on. So I've always sort of operated with, in terms of truth, just with from this perspective that things are true enough. That that if it's sort of serves the purpose and gets the job done then it's true enough and and I don't really understand why we should necessarily care about truth in and of itself and not just about things being true enough and I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that if my question doesn't make any sense please say so and I can try to no 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 I, 
It makes yeah, a lot of right. sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I have some. I I do have a few thoughts, but it would be very curious if either you or Ryan had uh, had a initial thought on that. Um, it's. I mean, it's an interesting question. It's a little. It, it reminds me a bit of that sort of infamous. Uh, debate between Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson where um, where Peterson uh, he's not saying exactly what you're saying I don't think but Peterson kind of argues that truth is whatever is useful for kind of our survival like some sort of evolutionary argument so some so it sounds like you maybe you are um, and tell me if I'm wrong are, are you interested in like some version of pragmatism that truth is just whatever useful I don't know what label I put on it and I don't okay. think like so I remember that between uh, Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris, and I don't believe that truth is just what helps us survive. It could be any okay. world, really. Um, it doesn't have to be survival. Um, mm -hmm. I, it just seems to me that truth doesn't really. I don't. I don't understand why we should. Why truth has inherent value and why we should care about it, and why we. Why it isn't sufficient that something is just true enough. Yeah, I guess my initial thought is that it sort of depends, um, like, okay, you say, why is it sufficient? So why is it sufficient for what, right? Like, exactly. if, if the question is, do we, like, are there, like, practical purposes where it doesn't really matter that much whether things are strictly true, as long as they're close enough to be true to, like, kind of do the job, then, yeah, clearly, exactly. right? Like, uh, like, the... You know, like Newtonian physics is strictly speaking not true. Um, mm -hmm. Like really, you know, relativity and quantum theory is true. But like, you know, the weather, like when the weatherman says this is 75% chance of rain, the like models that he's using to predict that are based on Newtonian physics. And that's fine because it's close enough. So uh, I don't know if that's the best example, but, you know, that, that's sure. Like it, it seems like things like that are fine. But then if the question is, do we care you know, is there any context where we care about whether something's true? Um, you know, like just kind of for its own sake, then I think there might be, right? So Robert Nozick is a philosopher who's best known for uh, advocating uh, hardcore libertarian political philosophy that I find grotesque, but he's a very smart guy. And he has this famous example called the uh, experience machine, which is basically says um, that imagine that there was this machine you could enter into, like you were offered the chance that it would basically be like plugging into the matrix voluntarily, that you could, uh, you could plug into this machine and you'd have this artificial version of reality for the rest of your life um, where uh, you knew that things, you knew that you were going to be like a little bit happier than you were that you would be in like the regular outside reality. And it's not even that you'd be unhappy because you'd have the nagging sense that this wasn't real or whatever. It'd be super duper convincing. Um, we can go beyond what Nozick says here to get the idea across more clearly and say, like, be like, you know, you're given five minutes to choose. And then like the first thing the machine does is erase your memory of the last five minutes. Right. So you have no idea that you're in the machine. So do you take that or not, right? And, um, and you know, maybe if you're super miserable in the real world, maybe you would take it. But it seems like 
even if you'd be a little bit happier in it, then you still probably wouldn't take it, right? Or at least I don't think most of us would, which, and if not, that seems to suggest that we do value like connection to external reality. We do value like having true beliefs somewhat in the, in themselves. I, I don't know. I don't know what you think about that. I, uh, it just seems that there are a lot of other aspects to that uh, example or that hypothetical mm-hmm. that sort of plays into it as well. So I think the the whole like memory erasing thing it's not it's not so much that it's it's a it's it's not the truth aspect so much as it is the feeling of being manipulated and the sort of disturbing thought of of having your your memories erased. Um, it feels but, like but, it, okay, 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 but why is that disturbing? Um, because 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 just just yeah. to push the point, like I, I mean, maybe there's a different gloss you could have about why it's disturbing. But one obvious thought is that it's disturbing because like you're you're not like in touch with that part of reality. You've you've lost your connection to to the truth of what happened, which does suggest that you care about like whether your perceptions are accurate, kind of for their own sake. Yeah, I suppose I, I think I'd have to think about it uh, a bit more because I think with my immediate reaction isn't so much that it robs me of some valuable truth so much as it is just sort of disturbing on a psychological level. Like I, I feel like it's it's sort of it's, yeah I don't know it's difficult to explain. It it just feels like you being toyed with um in a way that's very disturbing um but i mean in this case it's you're being toyed with at your request yeah i suppose uh but but i think the reason i wouldn't go into that machine is because my memory would be erased that's the that's the disturbing but it might might maybe it is because there i I play some inherent value and truth I'd, i'd have to think about it okay fair enough yeah, I'll, I'll mention. I like that example, and I, I always, I, I usually pose that one to my students, and I'll even make it more extreme. I'll say, you know, when you're in the experience machine, you're going to have the experience of whatever your perfect life would be—the perfect wife, the perfect house, the perfect job, whatever, whatever your ideal life would be. Um, and the only drawback is that it's all going to be a fiction. But of course, but again, the memory erase or whatever, you won't know that it's a fiction once you're in it. And I'll have one or two students who will say, yeah, I'd get in that machine, but it's usually at least 95% will say, no, I, I wouldn't, I'll, I'll take my current life as messy and imperfect as it is um, over the one where all of my experiences are going to be um, fictions, are, are not going to be in any way connected with reality. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, uh, I guess we could even, I mean, I don't know, maybe this is just too silly, but like we could even change it. So instead of doing the memory erasure thing, if that's a hold up, it could just be that they, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe that you say, yeah, I'll take it. And then over the course of the next several months, you're, you become convinced that that guy was just pulling your leg, that this machine that he put you in for a second didn't do anything. Uh, but you're in the machine. Right, because you you said that you would take it, and then you have this amazing life afterwards, or whatever. Right, like that. So, um, you know, I I think we could, you know, maybe that's too. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm 
overthinking this part, but like it, it seems like maybe we could get you know get around the memory erasure aspect and still have this this great life that you wouldn't um, that you wouldn't know was fake while you were in it. Yeah, no, no, I see what you mean, but it just it it, it feels to me like there's an aspect of sort of, of of having your agency removed, or at least having sort of your ability to choose, because in some ways it sort of just the the machine the, the experience machine reminds me of a video game and i don't like mm-hmm. playing video games but i know they're not real i know they're not connected to reality in any way but i find them fun while i'm playing it but i'd also like to stop playing it when i'm not having fun anymore so it sort of feels like the disturbing aspect of the experience machine is that you once you're in it you're in it that's it you don't get you don't get a chance to sort of say i'm not having fun anymore i'd rather go back to what i was doing before well, okay. I, I mean, you could you could adjust it so that uh, part of part of the deal you knew you were signing up for was like once every six months, um, you know, the the guy would come back around with the red pill and the blue pill, and you know, and, and yeah. give you a chance, and you know, and, uh, and then you know, if you if you picked the uh, the blue pill and you were going to stay in the machine, then um, then you would then like you would either forget about that or tell yourself it was a dream or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, but at that was... point, I definitely would get into the machine. Okay, that's interesting. If, if, I, if I got a chance every six months to, to sort of review and say, mm, do I want to go back to my uh, previous mm-hmm. life, at least for a little bit, or do I want to stay around here having fun, then I'd definitely do it. Okay. I don't know if, that, if that's in any way helpful, but yeah, I don't know. That that definitely changes changes it for me for some reason. Okay, all right. No, that's super interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I do take it for granted that there are at least some contexts where we care about having accurate beliefs, like, uh, or at least people typically care about having accurate beliefs, like for their own sake, like, and they're even willing to like make themselves unhappy by by pursuing accurate beliefs like um the i mean like the classic example would be that like your girlfriend or boyfriend your wife or husband you know you think might be cheating on you and you know you like go through all this effort to find out even though if you could just like will yourself to not care about what was objectively true um and you know then you'd probably be much happier i don't know yeah, I'd, I'd have to think about it. Um, I don't want to take up all your time. It's just something that's because it just seems to me that, that for the average person that works mm-hmm. a nine to five job and sort of things are just true enough for us most of the time. It's not. Um, well, I mean, I could maybe even go along with that. That like most of the time, being approximately true or close enough to true for whatever purpose you have is good enough, not even just for most people who are, you know, working nine to five or whatever, but like in general, uh, although I don't know, even there, I mean, I guess I hear that like nine to five thing and, and the, you know, the, uh, the socialist in me is like, yeah. Cause like, you know, we live in a society where most people don't have time to pursue like just various eccentric little interests. And that's a shame. I mean, we should, <laughs> you know, we should, we should have one where people are freed up as much as at all possible to uh to work on whatever interests them whether that's like you know making art or whatever or it's just like intellectual things that might involve just trying to figure out what's true for its own sake 
Yeah, I would, I would say, I mean, just the fact that a lot of people who are not academics will listen to podcasts and read pop science books and pop philosophy books and all these sorts of things, like, does show some kind of interest, even in, you know, whoever, the ordinary nine to five person in on trying to figure out what's really true. Like, we care about the answers to a lot of these big questions. I think that, that, that cares in most people. Like we're just epistemically curious and we sometimes want to know, you know, a lot of people are interested in like, what's the true theory of physics, even if it doesn't practically make any difference, like quantum mechanics. Well, I think a lot of people are. Yeah. A lot of people will tune in and listen to Neil deGrasse Tyson and Brian Green and these other people talk about, uh, and Sean Carroll and these other yeah, you know, yeah. people have millions of followers and yeah, people are right. interested write, in hearing their answers about what the true theory of physics is. But they'll, write, they'll write like best, like, like, you know, think about like Stephen Hawking, like the British yeah. history of time. That thing was a crazy bestseller. But I think people read those things because they're interesting and thought provoking. But I think, I mean, this is just sort of from my gun, from my own experience, because I listen to yeah. podcasts and things like that. But, One of the reasons I thought about this is because there are so many debates among Marxists about interpretations of, um, you know, uh, Marxist theories and different sort of uh, socialist theories of of, uh, uh, society and history and and politics and activism and all these things. And I just think no ordinary person ever has the time or the expertise to ever really get a clear picture of who's right or wrong on these things. And so it just, sometimes it seems to me that like, I don't know who these highly technical, really complicated discussions are for other than the people having them. Um, and, and and it's in times like these where I think isn't it's, it's just, if, if it's true enough, that's fine. I, it, those really nitpicky, uh, details don't seem to really matter to the average person that just wants a better life or a better society. I, I mean, so so that's a context where I mean, you're talking about political, you know, political philosophy or political theory, where like I think it's kind of built into the context that the point is to try to bring yeah, yeah. social change. So so I think that that's like a particularly good context for what you're you're saying. But I will also say. That an yeah. awful lot of people, like, you know, people are having all those debates that you're talking about, right? There are tons of people with, like, nine-to-five jobs who spend, like, you know, maybe way too much of their, you know, non-working hours, uh, you know, like, uh, on Twitter or listening to podcasts or whatever, trying to figure this stuff out. And maybe you say that's a bad use of their time, you know, maybe No, is, no, but, like, but it's definitely, I mean, it might be a, a lot of people within the sort of milieu we're in listening to sure but I mean, it's not the, it's not the majority of people right no no of working class people and most working class people if you start talking about marxism and different interpretations of um historical sure. materialism and that they'll just go what the fuck are you talking about That's right i mean and, and so and i'm just middle, wondering and most, and, and most and, middle, and most I, middle or, class people will too right I mean, and, and even some academics like me i kind of feel that way about it <laughs> I don't really care what the exact correct interpretation of Marx is. Like, let's just figure out the interpretation that gets at some important moral truths and will be useful for people. That exactly. and, so, in that context, I agree with you. But I think there are other contexts where, um, yeah. 
we really just do care about truth for its own sake. I would, yeah, and, and like you said, you said Chardonnay that the that like people were were interested in like millions and millions of copies of like Stephen Hawking books would be sold because you know they're interested in thought provoking. But where I would push on that is why are they interested in thought provoking? Right, like in other because... words, like would those have sold as many copies I honestly, if they I... if if they were about like just some like science fiction description of how physics worked in an alternate universe. I don't think I, I so. Think I don't so. think they would have sold like even 1% as many copies. I, I don't know. Science fiction books are quite popular, but, um, but yeah, I, sci- I, sci- science fiction novels with characters and stories and people oh, shooting you, so each other. So you just mean like a completely made up physics book would be. Yeah. A, yeah, a, yeah, a, yeah. Fi- like a physics book that was just like, like there are books like that. There's one called like the physics of Star Trek or whatever. Although even there, I think that a lot of why people are interested in it is because like that gorgeous short uh, story about a fictional country. Sure, if you've read that, yeah. Uh, but like, I think even like even like that physics of Star Trek book, I think a lot of the reason people are interested is it ties into the physics of the real world. I don't yeah. think like a a book that was just like of the format of like the Stephen Hawking <laughs> brief history of time, but it was just like, yeah. Completely made up physics. I don't think that would have sold like a thousand copies. Never mind millions. Well, no, like, I, the... I, it's interesting because it's you know people are interested in figuring out what's really true. See, I I think there has to be some sort of buy-in for it to be interesting. So it's, it's so you're right in some sense. It has to have at least in the reader's mind some connection to the world they're living in. But I honestly think that one of the important reasons why people find this stuff interesting is because most of life is fairly mundane we don't there's not there's not much magic <laughs> sort of left in our world anymore most people at least where i come from denmark live fairly secular lives that don't believe yeah. in anything sort of fantastical or uh, amazing so I, I think some of these things are sort of Alternatives, a ways to try to, to 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 make the universe seem sort of magical and fantastical again. Um, okay, okay, but I mean, like that—that that is still an interest in, like, like the fact that like something magical or fantastical would be sort of close enough for various engineering purposes or whatever. I don't think would excite people's information, it, it, imaginations the same way as finding out these fantastical and magical things about how the world actually works. Maybe, maybe. I'll think about it. Okay. Thank you. All right, thank Uh, you. Yeah, that was a super interesting question. Uh, Let's get Sam, who has been patiently waiting. Make next caller. So uh, first and foremost, Ben, uh, happy to talk to you. I'm a big fan. Uh, Thank you. Happy there's someone online, you know, within the political spectrum that kind of like synthesizes, you know, uh, philosophy and good leftist politics that I'm generally a big fan of. I think it's a niche thing that not a lot of people are doing, having like combining those two fields. So, you know, uh, it's good to, it's good to, you know, subscribe to YouTube and hear you talk about stuff. Um, So I'll just, but I do have a small uh, bit Mm -hmm. of criticism if I, if I can levy that against you. Yeah. I mean, if if, if Colin is good for anything, that's gotta be it, right? Sorry, what? <laughs> never mind, never mind. I was just yeah. joking. <laughs> so um, I watched your video uh, where it was Sam Harris is wrong about everything, right? And uh, oh, yeah. I'm, I genuinely agree with like 80% of what you claim he's wrong about. Uh, there are certain 
political stuff that I'm not going to actually get into the political stuff that I think he's kind of right about, but you know, I'm not going to get into that. Mm -hmm. At some point in the video, you guys played a clip of him debating Jenk Uger from TYT. And he was just trying to give some uh, general background from where he's coming from in terms of thinking as a moral mm -hmm. philosopher. Now we both know that he's not really a serious academic philosopher, but he thinks of himself as one. So we have to kind of mm -hmm. try to see how he thinks. Um, so in that sense, he talked, he gave an example, a thought experiment. He was just trying to express, look, we philosophers in the philosophy classroom, everything is up for discussion. We could discuss the, is it right to eat babies? Is it wrong to eat babies? And uh, one of your guests who doesn't have a philosoph philosophical background kind of questioned that and, and with derision, a lot of derision. And you and Ryan kind of just like jumped on the derision bandwagon with regards to yeah, it's ridiculous. We don't really talk about like thought experiments about eating babies in the classroom. And I know that's a very particular inconsequential thing to like have a criticism of. But like as someone who went to philosophy for four years and as an undergraduate, and of course you guys are professionals, mm -hmm. we both know. Come, we, we talk about that stuff in philosophy, like oh, absolutely. seminars. Yeah. Um, I just, I just, my last thing is, I just think you guys were so in the middle of like a three-hour like a uh, three hour marathon of shitting on Sam Harris, where you kind of just like lump that one in where he's actually right about that. Like we, everything is up for discussion in philosophy classrooms. Uh, but I, I just thought you guys were a little unfair to him in that one particular sense. That's it. Yeah. I, so I, I do, I agree with you. Like we, I definitely, and I, I think probably all of us do talk about some really outlandish um, and crazy and even grotesque, you know, trolley problem thought experiments, for example. Um, so we absolutely do that in philosophy. Um, so I don't remember exactly how that conversation went on that podcast. It was a very long um, episode. Um, but as I remember, our criticism was about a particular kind of shell game that he seemed to be playing, where on the one hand, he says, like, look, I'm just doing thought experiments. But then the thought experiment, like he talks about, like, you know, um, would we, you know, hypothetically, if uh, a certain kind of religious demagogue uh you know, we're leading a country and got a hold of nuclear weapons, then we should preemptively strike them. And he's like, this is just a thought experiment, but that's like really, really, really close to the real world. And similar to his torture stuff, like the context of, of his thought experiments are really close to just actually justifying things that are actually happening. So it's not just an abstract thought experiment. So our criticism was about him kind of pretending, or as I remember, uh, him kind of pretending to just be doing thought experiments when he's really um, offering a defense of things that were currently happening or could happen in the very near future. Yeah. Just, just to jump onto that. I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think that there might be a, you know, I mean, I think there might be something to Sam's criticism. I think that like, I, I mean, I'm trying to remember that conversation and I, and I think it's, I think it's possible that, um, uh, yeah, I think it was Gene who, you know, who made the initial comment and it's possible that just kind of in the moment of riffing, um, you know, doing the kind of yes and, uh, to, uh, to the joke, uh, that, um, that, you know, that there's like a distinction that Sam's pointing to that, you know, should have, you know, should have made more clearly, but I do also agree with Ryan's response that like, um, that again, I'm guessing that this is how it came up in the debate with, with Jen Kuger. Uh, because Harris, because uh, I don't think they were like I think I'm guessing again. I, I mean I vaguely remember that I remember the baby eating. 
uh, you know, I, uh, it, it was funny. I'm not, I'm not going to take that. It was funny, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, baby so yeah. So I remember the baby eating example and I'm guessing that it wasn't just that like Jenk Uger and that debate just randomly started being like, Sam, I hate thought experiments, defend thought experiments for me. <laughs> you know, like that seems like a really unnatural thing to come up in a political debate. It seems like it was more likely to be something like, uh, the you know what Ryan said, which is you know the thing about the nuclear first strike, which is something that Harris says in the end of faith, uh, or or some of the the like ticking time bomb torture stuff, and and I guess this is like if you read uh, you know Michael Brooks's book Against the Web, and you know, he has a long chapter on Harris, and he really gets into this there. Like I think, yeah, I, I mean I think maybe just to say what Ryan said in a slightly different way, and then you know. Um, I would just say, like, or actually, you can watch. Uh, me and Jen did a uh, when we were doing those Philosophy Friday live streams on YouTube. Uh, we did one that was about this exact point with Harris, um, and and the the point I think we we're making was just that I think he kind of wants to have it both ways on the it's just a thought experiment question, and I could totally believe that Jenk wasn't putting the point clearly. And so, like, maybe, like, Sam, in responding to him, um, had, was able to, you know, say something that was technically right about thought experiments and response or whatever. But, like, I, I'm guessing that it's, like, because the problem is, like, a thought experiment, really, right? And sure, they could be grotesque. I mean, I can't think of any actual thought experiments that involve eating babies, but it would not shock me whatsoever if somebody came up with one and, you know, it started. Well, if, if I can uh, origin yeah. for a second, in my experience in like my undergraduate philosophy courses, it wasn't so much so the professor walked in at 9, 15 a.m. and said, OK, here's the eating baby theory I have. <laughs> uh, I'm totally coming so... up with an eating baby thought experiment for my classes now. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like something, it's, that sounds like a Ryan uh, example to me. Yeah, so, so it was more like a, Sam, you were saying, it's more like a student would come up with it in the discussion. Not, not even a student, but it, it, more in so like one-on-one classes that just, you know, kind of push uh, the unaccustomed people who are not used to what philosophy is into the cold water, be like, in this classroom, you know, we have to question everything, you know, like, why is the wrong to eat babies? Well, we can't just assume that, you know, assumptions in the philosophy center seminar, we question all assumptions. And that's that's more so the context where, like, a baby, you know, eating example will come up just as a, as a, as a, as a vehicle to tell the students, in my experience at least, hey, we're going to really question everything here, you know? Not an actual, like, elaborate, systematic, like, you know, paper about like <laughs> eating babies, yeah, yeah. more so as just a vehicle to tell the students, this is the type of class we're going to have where we question a lot of stuff. No. And I think that's totally fair. But it, again, I think the context is that Harris tends to want to have it both ways about thought experiments. Like, um, like sometimes he'll say things like, and one of the things that he said about torture, he literally used the phrase, we might have to use torture in our current war on terror. You know, he used that phrase in our current war on terror. But then when pressed on it, he's like, look, I just have a philosopher's penchant for edge cases. You know, I like thought experiments. It's like, well, no, dude, you're clearly advocating that something actually happened in the real world or like the um, the the nuclear, um, you know, the nuclear first strike example. Like that's not like like, the, you know, you could have a thought experiment about circumstances under which that was justified. But the point of the thought experiment 
if it was actually a thought experiment, would be to like test like which principle we believed in or something like that, right? Like if you said um, aggression is always unjustified, you know, it's always unjustified to strike first, and then you came up with some you know, thought experiment in which even a nuclear first strike would be justified. They'd say, okay, that principle isn't right. We have to go back to the drawing board. Maybe it's always, it's only right to strike first if blah, 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 or whatever, right? Like that's the kind of thing that thought experiments are actually used for, are to like challenge definitions by saying, oh, here's something that would meet that definition, but it doesn't seem like it's the kind of thing that's supposed to be defined or else it's supposed to like test moral principles. Like the Judith Jarvis Thompson thing about the violinist that's like, oh, is it really true that you're um, that like a person's right to life always outweighs another person's right to bodily autonomy? But it seems like a lot of times he's not he's not using these examples to do anything like that, right? I mean, he's he's literally, you know, he's literally advocating uh, policies or at least trying to like soften people up to, hey, this is a thing I might actually have to do. And it's like I remember. Um, well, the original is much funnier than I'm gonna than this is gonna be because this is gonna be kind of the uh, the Walmart edit of this joke. But um, maybe that's a dated reference. Uh, Walmart used to sell uh, like CDs that would be that would like have some of like the most offensive, more offensive lyrics edited out. Uh, so this is you know this will be the uh, uh, the TV you know the TV version of the joke. But I remember when you know when. You know, I was helping him with Against the Web, and we were talking about this, having this conversation with Michael where he was like, yeah, I mean, look, if I tell you, you know, I might have to, uh, you know, I might have to go into your house and kill you, and he keeps coming up with, like, various offensive things that he's going to do. Hey, why are you getting upset? It's just a thought experiment. I'm saying that's something I might have to do. I hope I don't. You know, like, that's, that's, I think that's kind of what Ryan is pointing to there. Yeah, yeah. For sure. No, you guys uh, actually changed my opinion on that. I'm I'm proud to say where, you know, in the older days, I used to be very much so a, a strident militant defender of Sam Harris, as embarrassing that is to say, but not because we share the same name, but because I actually believed his name or sorry, in his, in his <laughs> ideas. And you guys changed my mind on the fact that, yeah, you kind of can't have it both ways. Like if you're going to be and like in, in having political discussions, talking about policy, talk, talking about like material, more actionable things. You can't then at the same time uh, maintain a posture as more of a theoretical philosopher, just interested in ideas. It's kind of so I guess my so you guys did change my mind on that. I think it's very unfair of him to or not even unfair. It's very sly and kind of uh, and it's, it's like very snake ish of them, I guess, for lack of a better word, to try to maintain both postures. That's I right. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. He's very slick. He's very slick <laughs> in the games he plays. Yeah. W- w- was it PZ Myers, uh, who, by the way, I still think is the, um, out of the original, like new atheist crowd in the late two thousands. Uh, he's by far the most defensible one, but he, uh, he said, uh, I think, I think PZ Myers is the one who called it the Sam Harris shuffle. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah, that's. Yeah, he. Yeah, he is out of that crowd. The one I still like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I did. Uh, I mean, obviously, obviously, I'm still in very, very many ways fond of Christopher Hitchens, but I've, uh, I've very mixed feelings there. Uh, which, by the way, if anybody wants to read about those mixed feelings, uh, is, uh, oh, is there is there a way we can do that then? Uh, there is, there is. Uh, uh, Jed, you want to, you want to tell people how uh, how people can do that? Read about the mixed feelings. 
Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a book. <laughs> there's a yeah. whole book about those mixed feelings. Yeah. And it's got a really nice cover that, that Andy drew. Uh, yep. Shout out to Jay Andrew. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Jenner. So I guess uh, just oh, one last question. Sam, please. Sorry, please. Ben. No, no, you go uh, for it. So I guess just like one last question, because as I said, I did four years in undergraduate. Did mm -hmm. you guys, as obviously, you know, philosophy students and now uh, professors as well, ever struggle yourself with the distinction between, okay, this is not a philosophy seminar. I'm just hanging out with my friends because, you know, uh, I've graduated long since graduated now. Um, but early on, I guess uh, it was like sometimes I would be, you know, hanging out with my friends and what's com a completely agreeable discussion about like your favorite movie or, you know, a debate <laughs> about some pedantic topic. Uh People with philosophy backgrounds, I struggle with the fact that, like, in a seminar, you're so trained to, like, question assumptions and try to come up with counterexamples and counterfactuals, <laughs> where I would be, yeah. at, I would, my friends would look at me and be like, bro, we're just trying to have a discussion. Like, yeah. Why are you yeah. questioning assumptions now? Why are you being so pedantic and analyzing every word? Mm -hmm. and, using definitions that you're saying were misusing. So did you guys ever struggle with like kind of separating church and state in that sense where? Oh yeah. Uh, philosophy philosophers are philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. Philosophy students are really obnoxious. Um, and I'm, I'm embarrassed sometimes when I look back on how um, we, especially me and Ben, I, I think Jen is better about this than we are. Um, but me and Ben, some of our other friends in grad school, um, we would, you know, hang out together and then we would hang out in with other people, non-philosophy students. And I think we really annoyed pretty much everyone <laughs> we hung out with um, all the time. Um, we, we couldn't uh, stop talking shop and stop, <laughs> stop doing that sort of thing. I don't know. I remember being delightful. Jen, do you have any thoughts? <laughs> uh, uh, no, not really. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I will say that I think that I think Jen's philosophical training to make fine distinctions and hone in on logical flaws and arguments is something that uh, has been has been weaponized against me many times in the uh, in the eight years that I've been married to her. But uh... <laughs> well, that wasn't the question, now was it? <laughs> You're fair game as a philosopher. She's allowed to do that to you. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. No, I, 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 absolutely. Right. Like I, I think, um, yeah, certainly, um, there are certainly times that, that I can, I can remember, uh, I can remember doing it. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that could be hard to turn off. Um, I, I'd like to think I've gotten a little bit better at it over the years, uh, and, uh, kind of, um, you know, separating context and, and actually even to take us back to like, uh, you know, I actually think what I've been doing the last few years has been kind of helpful for that because even though some of it's been using that training, it's also, I think maybe helped me in certain contexts to see like why like the most nitpicky philosopher's objection to something isn't necessarily the most important one. Like, um, like actually, that takes us right back to Sam Harris. That the uh, there was that uh, that was that tweet he had that uh, Jed and I did a you know did a segment about about uh, is ought, and he said like if uh, you know if if there's really a problem with inferring 
how is it that from something being true, you can infer that you ought to give it? And I've got to say, like, a lot of academic philosophy friends of mine, their immediate instinct in responding to that was like, oh, no, see, but you shouldn't necessarily, you know, but you can't actually go from such and such is true to you should believe it because, you know, there are all these really complicated epistemic norms and, you know, like yeah. it's, it's like, okay, <laughs> like, I get what you're saying. I think technically you're right. But like, I, I also think this is not necessarily the biggest objection to mm -hmm. what you're saying here. Like, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, that's, uh, I mean, uh, that's, very much so true and i something like I, I sometimes have to tell myself just shut up you know it's just not that important like we're just talking about like if scarface better than like good fellows like you don't have to talk, talk about like you know well, what defines good is good popular success is good <laughs> we're just having an agreeable discussion like yeah. but well, so we we agree that good fellows is better right okay example that would okay. never be a discussion in the first place okay yeah. thank you, yeah. thank you. I, I, I mean it's, it's it's much it's good fellows is a much better movie than scarface yes. uh i mean i enjoy scarface I lived in Miami for six and a half sure. years. You know, it's, like I, it's I, the law. You have to watch it like once a month down there. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I mean, Goodfellas is is a is a much better movie. I mean, the whole thing just from like the fact that Goodfellas is like was it like two and a half hours long? Uh, you know, three hours long, and yeah. like it just like you just like from the second you start to watch that movie, it just like just the way it yanks you through it. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so, Jen, do you uh, do you have any thoughts about circumstances in which it's uh, morally acceptable to eat babies? Uh, are these babies? Are you having to kill these babies to eat them, or? I mean, if you're already... them, still alive, that seems like it might be hard. No, no, no. Like, do you have to kill them? And you know, oh, I like, if you just find a random dead baby, is it okay to eat it? <laughs> I don't see why not. <laughs> all right. All right. Jen has embraced the bold uh, pro-baby stance. Uh, this is getting spicy. I've got uh, Rick. Oh, sorry. I, sorry, that's not what I meant to do. Next, next caller. Rick. Hi there, guys. Um, Hello. Uh, ben, I, I'm very interested in uh, Hitchens' intellectual progression as and that seems to be popping up kind of as, uh, you know, uh, in the aftermath of your book. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it does seem a real shame that uh, there's just not much material to try and understand that phenomenon. Um, something else I kind of in connection with that, uh, mm -hmm. that his evolution is this question which you're interested in, I think, mm -hmm. uh, which is, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, his his relationship to new atheism, or really the relationship of new atheism to other things, kind of in, in the intellectual world, and whether new atheism was a, a productive kind of movement. And I I generally understand that you think it wasn't, mm -hmm. or at least you were sympathetic to certain strands of it, but you think it was kind of overly provocative or divisive. Is is that uh, your your general take? Yeah, kind of. So, I mean, look, I think to the extent that what new atheism was, and I mean, it's it's not a perfect phrase for what's supposed to describe, but like, 
this phenomenon of like atheist authors becoming really prominent and fans of them kind of seeing themselves as a movement and, you know, all of this stuff that happened in the late 2000s. I mean, to the extent that it's just like that what we're talking about is just that like books about atheism uh, became really popular and lots of people read them, then I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I mean, I, I think that like, maybe it's even a really good thing in some people's lives. You know, if you come from, from some like super fundamentalist background and um, you know, like um, you know, for a variety of reasons, I think that could actually be really good for you. Uh, but I guess my objection to new atheism is not even so much what I think a lot of people's is on the left now, which is that I think a lot of people now kind of look back on that through the sort of lens of the way the culture war has changed since then. And they kind of look at the fact that, you know, the direction that Sam Harris, who we were just talking about, has gone in in the last, you know, whatever, 10 years, um, or like Richard Dawkins, who will like tweet these bizarre things about how like, you know, I don't understand why people like, you know, Kafka, because this is just nonsense. People couldn't turn into cockroaches, you know, like. <laughs> oh, God. And, but, uh, and then what was it he was praising? Oh, it was young Sheldon. I think it was. <laughs> he was like talking about how great young Sheldon was. And it's like, OK, yeah. OK, <laughs> like can't handle Kafka. But yeah, young Sheldon. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So if nothing else is not a good literary critic. Uh, but But I think that like. I think a lot of people will sort of say like, okay, some of these people in various ways and to various extents, both like big figures like that and on the grassroots drifted towards like, you know, the IDW, right? Intellectual dark web, sort of Jordan Peterson, you know, Sam Harris, stuff, or, um, or even like, you know, I don't know. I mean, like, we all kind of know that there's, like, a kind of person who was super-duper into new atheism in at one point who's, like, into, like, uh, like, I don't know, like, Reddit misogyny or, you know, James Lindsay stuff or whatever now, right? Like, and I think a lot of people sort of look at that and then they kind of take the worst elements of what some of these guys were selling in the late 2000s and they kind of put it together in a way that's a little bit misleading. So they say, oh this was always this really reactionary thing. It was just Islamophobia. And it was a rationalization for that. And I actually think that's really overstated. I think there was some kind of war on terror Islamophobia in the mix, especially with late Hitchens' worst foreign policy positions and some of the Samara stuff we were talking about. But I, I guess I don't think that was that distinctive, right? I mean, in other words, like I think that kind of like rah-rah sort of extreme, you know, um, you know, the Muslims are coming to kill us and our bad stuff was just kind of pervasive in American culture in the 2000s, as I recall, at least. Uh, and, you know, and and in even in like liberal American culture, like it's as hard as this is to remember, like Bill Maher was like a liberal icon in the 2000s. And so I don't, you know, I think that what people are often missing when they look back on it is that I think more than anything, what new atheism was, was it was a reaction to the way the conservative side of the culture wars was in the 2000s. Like back in the 2000s, your average progressives big, like, you know, their big thing about uh, right wingers 
like their big anxiety about them wasn't so much that they thought they were like racists, although they might have thought that also. But that wasn't the main thing. The big anxiety was like there were theocrats who wanted to ban abortion and put gay people back in the closet. And I think that new atheism was overwhelmingly kind of a response by a certain element of the liberal side of the culture war to all of that stuff. And so I think in that sense, I mean, it wasn't like, I think there was a certain amount of good motivation to it, but my problem with it is just that I guess two things. One is that I think just as a matter of practical politics, I think that sort of confusing that sort of metaphysical issue of whether or not there's a God with the sort of political issue of all that stuff I just said, right? Like, I don't think is super productive. Like, I, I think that, um, I think it's going to misidentify who's really an ally and who's really an enemy a lot of the time. Like, um, you know, like there are plenty of people who have like deeply spiritual or religious views who completely agree with me about all that stuff. And, um, and, you know, like, I don't know, Cornell West, right. You know, doesn't, doesn't want to ban abortion or put gay people back in the closet. Right. Or like, uh, I think of, uh, actually the, the pastor at the church that, uh, that Jen went to. And when we lived in New Jersey, uh, Seth Caperdale, who's actually like the green party candidate for governor of New Jersey at one point, And, you know, they'd have like big, like rainbow flags for like pride month on the, you know, church website. And, you know, they, they do all this stuff to help immigrants and stuff like that. And and those people I would see very deeply as political allies. And and I think that, like, whereas there are tons of people who are atheists who, you know, might agree with me about those issues, the sort of gay rights, abortion kinds of issues, but, like, disagree with me about other issues that are equally important to me, right? So the idea of atheism as, like, sort of a political movement never really made sense to me. And then, like, the other criticism is I think that they're... Maybe to take us a little bit closer back to philosophy, that there's a sort of idealism in the sense of like idealism as opposed to materialism to it. That like when when like the subtitle of like Christopher Hitchens' is, uh, a new atheism book, God is not great, was how religion poisons everything. And in the book, of course, he's pointing at lots of very horrible things that religion has been used to justify, but. I guess I think the idea that like the sort of chain of causation leading to those things kind of that like the sort of most important endpoint of that chain is religion itself in a lot of cases just seems wrong to me. I think a lot of times there are, you know, factors in the material world that are really causing these things to happen. And then, you know, religion might be a very convenient pretext, but I don't really think it's the source of the problem, if that makes sense. Yeah, you, I agree with uh, a good chunk of especially what you said in kind of the first half of that. Uh -huh. um, I actually would argue that uh, uh, new atheism, there was something prescient about it. Mm -hmm. And there was a, a continuity there with the IDW and the good. I would, uh, you know, the current state of the ID, IDW is very heterogeneous. So I would mm -hmm. I would never want to group together someone like Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris in a fundamental way. Although they share certain, I would say, more derivative commonalities mm -hmm. um but the the key continuity i, I want to focus on here is go back to the the new atheists a key theme of theirs was to be afraid of and point out a tolerance for dogmatism 
that was emerging both on the left and on the right. And so, you know, on the left, it was that tolerance for and kind of uh, uh, apologies for um, Islamic fundamentalism. And, and, and the new atheists were definitely very critical of that, alongside with being very critical of the standard, you know, decades old uh, right right wing um, dogmatism in all kinds of, you know, anti-scientific crusades of the right from the 90s and the 80s and that stuff. But it was that idea that there's a potential for dogmatism that is not simply existing on one side of the spectrum that has manifestations on both sides. And you can see the, the continuity there with the IDW, which is basically, you know, the, identifying the same kind of thing that has popped up over the, uh, you know, roughly over the last uh, five years or so. Uh, kind of this, I would say, much more uh, uh, consequential dogmatism within part of the left, you know, the woke mm -hmm. left, and pointing out that there are these other emergent dogmatisms now on the new right, on the kind of right-wing populist Trumpist right. Uh, and it's the same phenomenon. These, these two sides are, I would say, even much more now than uh, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, it's the dogmatic elements of both of these sides which are gaining power within the mainstream of the left and the mainstream of the right. So I would say there's a really prescient thing about new atheism on the part of both Hitchens and Harris. And I would venture to say, you know, today, Hitchens would, I, I think, be very similar again to Sam Harris in his critique of the orthodoxies of the woke left curious what you think about that yeah um this is actually okay so there's a lot going on in that question and i don't think i'm going to be able to do all elements of it justice in uh in the next like minute which is i think what we should really spend on it and i do want to before i even say any of what i'm going to say i do want to offer if i do this again tomorrow at the same time uh, do you want to call back in and we can talk about the elements that we don't get to right now? Cause, cause I don't want to, sure. I don't want to shortchange your, your question, right? Cause, cause I think you asked about a lot of things and they're all interesting and, and I think they would all get us into big discussions. Um, I guess just to pick up a couple of elements of it really quickly right now. And then if either Jen or Ryan has anything they want to kind of, you know, say on, on this, they could say it. Uh, I, I would say, on the very last thing that you mentioned, um, like the sort of like if Christopher Hitchens had like beaten cancer in 2011 and he was still like, you know, I don't know, writing for Slate now, although I don't know if Slate would still have him now, uh, but whatever, you know, he was still writing for wherever he was writing for now. Uh, and what would his sort of attitude be towards certain kinds of culture wars we're having? Um, can I see him being a critic of certain excesses of what, just to use the word that everybody uses, even though it's not a great word, we, you know, of like wokeness, right? Sure, I can. Can I see him being like, you know, canceled many times, maybe sometimes fairly, but, you know, also sometimes unfairly? Yeah, I can. That said, I actually think that a lot of sort of things that a lot of people in this sort of a certain segment of IDW-ish or, or, you know, self-consciously anti-woke kind of people are doing now, I actually think you'd be pretty critical of. I mean, one of these I'm actually writing an article about right now. Um, 
I, I, I sort of don't want to say for where because I don't want to jinx it. You know, if it's not, uh, if it, you know, if, if it's, you know, if, if they decide, you know, they accepted the pitch, but if they decide not to publish it. But the article is basically, um, well, we did a segment up about this on GTA, you might have seen, uh, but the article is basically like why I think Christopher Hitchens would have hated the, the anti-critical race theory laws. Uh, because, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, his sensibilities were very much unlike what a lot of people who'd like to think of themselves as heterodox or anti-woke or whatever uh, would be and stuff like that, right? Like, I mean, he was pro-reparations for the descendants of slaves. Uh, he, even after his post-9-11 turns to the right on foreign policy, he still advocated uh, that position. And, you know, and he was like very, very passionate about sort of free and open discussion of controversial ideas, you know? So I think that like something like these laws say, no, you can't discuss, you know, divisive concepts in your classroom, you know, about race. I think for many reasons, he would have deeply hated that. Um, as, get... as various other people on the anti-woke side have come out since, uh, you know, that campaign has been launched. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad to hear it. I, I, I think, you know, I wish there were more. But yeah, I, I think um, so. I mean, look, I think. I think the capacity for dogmatism is certainly not unique to any any side of any issue. Um, I think that I think that whether particular accusations of dogmatism are are accurate, I think is something that has to be dealt with on a little bit more of a case by case basis. Um, and I'm a little, um, you know, on some on one of the specific examples you gave, right? Uh, is it really true that that many people on the American left were sort of, um, you know, cool with like Islamic fundamentalism or whatever? I tend to think that's overstated. I mean, I think there are real things that I think there are real things you could probably point to. Like it, it is true enough that there are people who like, um, you know, who like have, um, in their effort to like show how tolerant and multicultural they are, they've like defended some things they should not have defended. I'm not going to deny that they're real examples, but I, I think oftentimes that accusation was leveled very unfairly because of, um, because of things like opposition to specific things that the U S government was doing in the Muslim world, which should have been opposed. Right. That, and, and I think that, I think that we could often separate out those two questions, right? Of like whether you're against the thing itself and whether you're for something that's being done in the name of fighting that thing. Like, um, which I would say, again, you know, go back to Christopher Hitchens. I think young Hitchens at least was very good on this, right? Like there's a C-SPAN appearance, I remember, where he's talking about the invasion of Granada, you know, uh, by the Reagan administration in the early 80s. And... Um, and, you know, callers keep pointing out, well, but this government, you know, so this government, you know, in, in Granada, you know, was like this military junta, you know, like, why are you defending that? It's like, look, I, I, I'm totally against that. I, I actually interviewed, you know, Maurice Bishop, the previous president of Granada, who was overthrown by the junta. But that doesn't mean the U.S. gets to pick the governor of Granada, right? So I think he was making a very sharp distinction there, one that, from my perspective, is very correct. I don't know. Any of you guys want to throw in anything on this one? I'm, uh, I'm good. I'm yeah. I'm good. 
Yeah, I, I don't have a lot to add to what you said. Um, I'll just say, yeah, I, I think, or at least I hope, that Hitchens would be a little bit no, more nuanced. Um, uh, I think he probably would have some criticisms of you know, the, the quote-unquote woke left, some of their excesses, but I think he would be a lot more nuanced than, like, say, Sam Harris has been. I'm curious, why is there such a hesitancy even to name this phenomenon? There, you know, people tiptoe around the word woke. I don't love the word woke, but there needs to be some word, right? And, and any time there's any movement to try and just uh, categorize this phenomenon, which like every phenomenon, like every, everything that, you know, that enters discussion at this level, it needs to be, it needs to have a concept to designate it. Why is there this this trepidation about just putting a word on this phenomenon on the left, which maybe you think it's bigger, maybe you think it's smaller, but it needs to be named and understood, right? Yeah, so uh, just speaking speaking for myself, I will just say on that question that like a year ago, I would have been much less hesitant about the label. Like certainly in my particular corner of the left, let's call it like Jacobin world, um, I saw, like, I, I feel like that word was thrown thrown around a lot more like a year ago than it is right now. I think one reason why, again, not speaking for anyone else, but I think one reason why maybe I, like, feel slightly more awkward using it now is because so many people on the right wing and all, you know, like, definitely in, in like, you know, the Republican Party and to a certain extent maybe even IDW sorts of circles, but certainly, like, the kind of mainstream American right have started using it for everything. And yes. I feel like I've just lost track of what it's supposed to mean at this point. Like what, like that, which phenomenon it's supposed to point to that. I would, yeah, that would be, that's my same reason as well. Yeah. I definitely would have been more comfortable using woke a year or two ago. It's a similar thing with cancel culture. Like there was a mm -hmm. point where cancel culture was picking out something very specific, but now like literally everything gets called, cancel culture by certain groups of people and at yeah, some point right. the terms kind of lose their meaning um yeah so that that's my trepidation about using it yeah i can understand that but there, there's a real danger here in playing this little social status game amongst your own in-group and not wanting to you know look tarnished and and the danger is that you lose concepts and this phenomenon is very important whether or not some maniac like james Lindsay decides to like you know, crap all over everything. This concept in, in terms of intellectual history, in terms of understanding ideologically, you know, why different factions are forming, you need to retain some concept here and fine, rebrand it, come up with your own term. But there needs to be a, a term that you use to have this in your own mind to understand what's going on. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, the question of Tardish in, um, I think I've at least got to, you know, like I, I am not... I think that you'd be hard pressed to look at the last like year of my life and, and say that I'm, you know, I'm worried about tarnishing, right? Like I, uh, I published a book called canceling comedians while the world burns a critique of the contemporary left. I mean, if that's not like a middle finger to, uh, the, uh, uh, to, to, you know, some of the, some of the issues we've been talking about, I don't know what, I don't know what would be right. So, so I, I think I've been like, extremely willing to criticize people on the left who are 
doing things that seem stupid to me. I've been extremely willing to criticize sort of, um, you know, moralistic and censorious attitudes that, that I hate, you know, like I, I, but I think, um, you know, you mentioned James Lindsay, right? James Lindsay has called me woke many times. Like, I, and I just don't know what he means by that. And, and some of the people with the biggest, like, like if you watch, like I, you know, I was recently, uh, you know, at the home of some members of my extended family in Texas and, uh, and where Fox news was on a lot. And, and so like, I'd, every time I walked by, it felt like, you know, like the, you know, the, the word woke or the phrase cancel culture was being used and it would often be used just to, to mean anything they don't like. Right. So I, I think that like that may be in reaction to that. I think my impulse is very much to, uh, to want to be more specific, right? Like, so if what we're talking about is like identity politics, you know, let's say identity politics, if what we're talking about is, you know, people not valuing free speech enough. Let's talk about people not valuing free speech enough. And it seems like, especially like, like I kind of understand one of the reasons I felt like I understood woke better a year ago is that, you know, it always seemed like what it was really labeling more than anything was a certain kind of cultural posturing, uh, you know, like a, like a certain kind of rhetoric, et cetera. And certainly when I still use it, that's what I mean. But like now I see people talking about like wokeism, and I'm very skeptical that that actually names a phenomenon. I think that like I see people with various political positions that are really importantly different from each other who are both doing some of the same kind of like liberalish culture war posturing that I dislike. But I, I just I'm just not I just don't know that. I just don't know that we're we're actually doing a better job of slicing up reality at the joints and like and identifying real phenomena if we use those phrases or if we're just unhelpfully lumping things together. So we could keep on on this for a long time. Uh, they again, if you if you you know, I'll do this at the same time tomorrow. I don't know if I can rope either of these two in, but if you if you call in, I will I will take your call first because I know there's a lot in your question. Uh, that we've barely touched on, but I do want to just get uh, Jeremy because um, uh, because he's been waiting. And for today, we're probably going to make this the last call because I need to actually get to the airport and uh, not too long. Jeremy, what's on your mind? So thanks for taking my call. I'm listening to you all this morning while, well, it's, I guess it's afternoon now. I'm, the time is a flat circle as I try to get the <laughs> syllabus syllabus together for um, a class I teach on conspiracy theory. Um, and so I've been teaching this class for a number of years. I'm working on a little book um, about conspiracy theory. Um, and so I wanted to, I wanted to just sort of get your, your read, all three of you really, your read on how to deal with conspiracy theories. What I find is in, in epistemological circles, anybody that's written on um, conspiracy theories, um, let's say in the past 20 years, is there's, there's two ways to take conspiracy theories. Um, uh, early on in the literature, um, epistemologists generally wanted to say that when we recognize a conspiracy theory as a conspiracy theory, when we're looking at some kind of explanation of some historical event, we can just dismiss it out of hand. Um, and there are a number of reasons that they would cite for this, um, like falsification and that kind of thing. And this, this critique of conspiracy 
theories is often referred to as a generalist approach to dealing with conspiracy theories. Once we recognize a conspiracy theorist, put it away. Um, or a conspiracy theory, rather, put it away. It, it doesn't count as a, uh, a candidate explanation for any historical phenomenon. More and more, though, I find myself in the minority for holding this view because there's a particularist kind of move that has been made where philosophers are pointing out, first of all, the number of conspiracy theories that happen to be true, that turn out to be true. And so more and more philosophers tend to take a particularist approach. They tend to say, well, just because something's a conspiracy theory, we have to in, a, you know, in, in, in common parlance, kind of look into it. Um, we have to do our own research before we can dismiss it as a category of explanation. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in uh, all of your view, really. I mean, um, um, you know, Jen, you're teaching uh, a critical thinking class and, and uh, both Ryan and uh, Ben, you, you, do, you do a lot with epistemology as well. So I'm curious what you think about um, either this generalist or particularist approach to dealing with conspiracy theories. Um, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll say just shortly, um, I actually would agree, I think, that we have to take a particularist approach, but saying that, I um, so I, I think there are certain features of conspiracy theories you can look at. That, so there's a certain kind of conspiracy theory where I would be a generalist, like really big conspiracies theories, especially that involve lots of actors in really implausible ways um, that start to become unfalsifiable. Um, then I would just say, okay, dismiss it. But there are certain um, conspiracy theories that don't have those features that um, that are you know that are candidates that could be true. Um, so yeah, I, so I think it would depend on the details of the conspiracy theory. I think it's possible that there was a conspiracy of Roman senators that killed Julius Caesar. Yeah, exa exactly, exactly, right. So um, even some, like, crazier ones, like, you know, if it turned out that there was some kind of mafia conspiracy behind the JFK assassination or something, like, I, I, I tend to believe it was just Oswald acting alone, but I wouldn't be totally shocked if something like that turned out to be true. So there, so there's some conspiracy theories that are, like, you know, or candidates that are maybe worth looking at, Um and some that are just true, yeah, <laughs> like like Julius Caesar. Yeah, I guess my worry is, um, well, and I have a number of worries about the particularist approach, but I, I worry that, um, well, first of all, it's not clear what we're defining as a conspiracy theory. I, you know, even as a generalist, I wouldn't deny that certain at certain instances in history, conspiracy theories do turn out to be uh, true. Um, but I, I, but part of it has to do with just an epistemological attitude toward the world. And one of the consequences that taking the conspiracy theorists seriously has is that we end up spending a lot of time and energy on things that almost always are false. And that's right. Yeah. So this is, this is something that I really worry about. Yeah. Same, same. And so I think, and I, and I don't have like a worked out view about what these features are exactly but i think there are certain kinds of conspiracies that are just not worth spending energy on um mm. uh, yeah, so, yeah like like if right I, I mean certainly like if somebody says like i think that there was like a you know i don't know like a global cabal of of jews who you know planned such and such it, it sort of doesn't matter what the such and such is like you know you, you're probably safe rolling your eyes and moving on uh, but I guess, I guess I would, actually, before this, Jen, just, just out of curiosity, uh, 
Do you ever talk about conspiracy theories in your critical thinking classes? Because that's something I could sort of imagine you doing. Uh, like, like as their own thing? No, not really. Okay. So, so, so when you say like as their own thing, like you might talk about some of them as like examples of cognitive biases or something like that. Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess, I guess, um, I guess one problem, and in a weird way, this is a little bit like the previous discussion about grouping things, is it is a little tricky to say what it. Because I, I definitely feel the intuitive pull of what you're saying, Jeremy, that, like, we kind of know what it means to call something a conspiracy theory. That sort of is a, is a reason to take it less seriously because it belongs to this category. Like, that feels true to me. But I think I would be very hard-pressed to demarcate, like, exactly what, what it means to say something's a conspiracy theory. Like, I, I, I mean, it clearly doesn't just mean that there are, like, you know, a bunch of people working in concert to do something that they don't want people to know about, because if so, the conspiracy theories are, like, quite often true. Sure. I think a big feature of the conspiracy theory that, at least that we're talking about, is that this this explanation for an event runs contrary to a, a quote-unquote official account. So it's it's in opposition to the officially sanctioned account, whether that's be sanctioned through the media or historians or whatever. And so that's another feature um, in addition to a group of individuals working in secret and often or usually for like a sinister purpose. I, I think that that's a real good characteristic of what we count as a conspiracy theory because it's weird to say that your friends conspired against you um, when they gave you a surprise party <laughs> like, sure like, sure but i mean like I, I totally right but like just to maybe sharpen this and maybe maybe this is the kind of example that can pull people towards particularism um an example that's been on my mind because i was i was thinking about it like i was tweeting about this yesterday here's something that checks all three of the boxes right a bunch of people can a bunch of people working in concert for you know for like in order to do something that at least most, you know, I would certainly perceive as malicious and right. that pointing out that it happened and, you know, and doing so in secret and pointing out that it happened uh, at least at one time ran counter to official narrative would be the uh, WMD issue in Iraq that, sure. uh, that, that like that there really were Bush administration officials who, who were conspiring to misrepresent the evidence and, if you said that, like, I mean, the reason I was thinking about this example is yesterday I was, I was thinking, you know, I tweeted this because I was thinking about, like, social media policy companies having, like, policies to, like, ban people for, you know, misinformation. I was thinking about this, man, if, uh, if social media existed in the form it does now in 2002 and this policy existed, you know, what do you think would get banned as misinformation? Would it be people saying that there are WMDs in Iraq or people saying that there were to Bush administration officials were conspiring to lie to the public about it? And I'm pretty sure it'd be that second one because there was very much an official narrative. Like the New York Times published all this stuff about, you know, about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. That's, that's fair. Um, and this is something, and, and maybe I, maybe you sense that this is just slouching toward particularism, but when I talk to my students about this, when I try to defend the generalist view, um, I tend to say, well, you know, once in a while, conspiracy theories turn out to be true, but be, it, because it's so um, epistemically costly to consider them, 
Um, and because of the nature of how it makes us question all institutions and like kind of institutional kind of, uh, uh, you know, understanding or, or sense making, I hate the word, but, but, um, it, it just comes at too high a price. So if it turns out once in a while that the conspiracy theorist is right, you know, a broken clock is right twice a day. Um, this doesn't, I don't think that this opens us up to this full blown particularism about, about, uh, you know, conspiracy theories. I think this is a little more like what Ryan is suggesting. And, and, um, I guess maybe if, if press that would put me into that kind of, uh, you know, kind of particulars camp. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm more, I, I still am much more sympathetic to kind of teasing out what we mean by conspiracy theory and saying, well, once we recognize that this is the kind of explanation we're offering, um, you know, given the fact it can't be falsified and the counter evidence counts as evidence. I mean, what are we even doing here? This is just a nice story that we're telling, but, but, um, and I know, I know we're wrapping, th you're wrapping things up here, but I do have a question. Do you guys have any sort of hunch of, about what, what motivates individuals to be more attracted to conspiracy theories than standard explanations? Is this is something I'm working on and, and, and I'm, I'm curious if you've thought about this at all. Um, it, it is something I've thought about a bit, um, especially because I, I have some people uh, close to me in my life who are very inclined toward conspiracy theories, who are you know, generally quite you – know, so I'll, I'll name drop my brother here, my brother Jared, who is um, – an incredibly, incredibly smart guy, um, but very, also very, very attracted to conspiracy explanations. Like one of our biggest debates over the years has been the 9/11 uh, truther conspiracy mm. theories, which he's been. And he's, he, I think he's less inclined toward it now, but for a long time he was he would, took that very seriously. Um, and so I, I kind of think there may be some psychological features of people that make them um, attracted to this. So maybe things like. Um, a tendency to see patterns where patterns are not. So some people are. So I, I almost wonder if, if, if like a more because he's also very artistic and creative, and so I wonder if there's something to that, like just a tendency to over-identify patterns that might make some people attracted to them. Also, maybe just a general distrust of authority, which he certainly has in spades. Um, um, and yeah, I don't know. And then, and not so much in him, but in other people also, I think maybe, um, being attracted to conspiracy theories is, is kind of a way to feel like you have a handle on the world. Like maybe mm. some events are so big, um, that you just can't, it's hard to psychologically cope with the, the, the view that it's just some random thing or that it was, uh, that there's no deep meaning behind it. And so when you have a conspiracy theory, then then the world kind of seems more ordered and kind of makes more sense and you can feel like you have a handle on things. So I wonder if that might be going on with some people as well. But I mean, this is all like mostly speculation. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess I would just add to that. Like, I mean, I'm somebody who's generally, I mean, look, I think there's pretty much nothing that we would normally consider to be a conspiracy theory that I think is, is right. Like I, um, uh, I, you know, like if I had to get, you know, I mean, I, I don't really know, but I mean, if I had to, like, if I had to put dead money down on a theory of the JFK assassination, I would say that it was probably just Oswald, right? You know, but, right. uh, um, but I guess one kind of going with Ryan's second explanation, like one sort of maybe more sympathetic read on why some people are drawn to it is that they 
have a not entirely incorrect sense that uh, <laughs> they live in a world where uh, a lot of powerful people who don't necessarily have their best interests at heart can like kind of do what they want with impunity. Mm. So like the um, the sort of perfect example of this is you think about QAnon, right? Like this is as insane as conspiracy theories get. Like it's it's completely ridiculous. Every bad making, you know, irrational making feature of a conspiracy theory is 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 present there. Uh, and certainly their core claims, I would bet lots of money, are entirely false. But there is this sort of weird sideways resemblance between some of what they say and reality. Like, uh, man, the idea that tons of powerful and wealthy and well-connected people are part of a uh, are part of a uh, of a cabal of pedophiles. Uh, you know, look at the just Lane Maxwell trial and some of what came out there. You know, like that's not uh, that's not a hundred percent wrong, right? I mean, Donald Trump and, and Bill Clinton were both on the. You know, both flew around on the Lolita Express. You know, like it's it's um, like the, you know, like so. I, I I think there might be reasons why sometimes, even though the particulars are ridiculous, because their people are just kind of like making them up, right? I mean, whatever shady things powerful people are doing, they would have no way of knowing. Like, I think that there might be a not entirely unreasonable instinct that might drive some people towards extremely unreasonable manifestations mm. of that. Mm. All right. Uh, there is tons more we could say about this. I will extend the same offer to you. I meant to uh, to Rick earlier. If you want to, if you want to talk more about conspiracy theories, or want to call in, to, uh, you know, tomorrow I could I could start at the same time at noon. I have a class at one, but I can start at noon uh, Eastern. Uh, I, w- I would actually love to do that. I will rope in whoever I could rope in. But uh, I was originally planning on leaving for the airport like now, so uh, I should probably I should probably get off so I can finish getting uh, getting ready for that. Uh, but all of these calls were great. I really really enjoyed this. This is exactly what I was hoping uh, it would be. Uh, Jen, Ryan, any final thoughts? Yeah, no, thanks. This was this was a lot of fun. All, all every call was was really interesting. So yeah, this was a good time again. Sometime. Awesome. All right. See you guys. All right, see you. Have a, have a good flight.